Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Eating Crow Podcast. Here's your host, Pete Durand. to the latest episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I have the pleasure of uh, being joined by Tucker Shade, which by the way is the coolest name I've had in a podcast so far. You could do just about any profession with that name. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I didn't have much to do with it, but I'm happy it, happy it turned out that way. <laughs> I got a funny story about naming one of my kids later we'll get into, but Tucker, welcome. It's, glad, it's just great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So full disclosure, uh, I, I met Tucker through, uh, I think we ran into each other in the past through some other connections, but my son now works in Tucker's organization. So uh, I've, had, uh, I've had some interest in, in learning more about Tucker and his background, and we'll go into that as well. But Tucker, kind of describe what you do at Savills and tell us how the heck has COVID impacted commercial real estate? And I want to drill in how you got there. Sure, sure. I'm... COVID's had an impact on a lot of uh, a lot of organizations, but I work in the uh, office space arena and office space brokerage. And as everybody that is you know, maybe listening to this at some point, probably from home, uh, instead of the office, can can attest that uh, COVID is having a uh, a very uh, significant impact, short term and likely long term, on the office on the office business or the office brokerage uh, sector. But uh, I am a commercial real estate broker, as most people would refer to it, and I and our uh, team here in Raleigh and throughout the United States spend 100% of our time representing tenants or the users of primarily office space and helping them uh, negotiate, identify, negotiate, and secure office leases or, or the purchase of office buildings or, or, or portions of. I and I think one of your unique angles, if I understand it correctly, is you guys help people with multiple locations, potentially globally, which is a unique, uh, unique position for Savills to do this. You're a global organization. That's right. And, you know, our company has offices, you know, about 350 offices around the world. We've got wow. about 32,000 employees around the world. So our perspective and our involvement in real estate is it goes beyond the local uh, approach. And you know, we're fortunate enough to have a handful of clients that uh, have hired us or engaged us to help them uh, both locally, regionally, nationally and internationally. So uh, as we talk about COVID, as we talk about uh, office leasing in general, we do have a, a fairly broad, uh, broad set of uh, properties and countries to, to speak to. It's, the ability to manage a large portfolio is is one of the key advantages of Savills. It is. It is. You know, there. Uh, you know, for businesses that do have offices all over the world, you know, they could go out and engage brokers in each one of those local markets to help them. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is oftentimes easier and more effective to hire one firm that has offices where they have offices so that there's some continuity yep. um, as they approach their, their real estate. And, um, you know, it, it helps with, you know, kind of creating a, a centralized approach to, to a distributed set of offices. Yeah. So from what you're hearing from your clientele, are you seeing different reactions globally versus what's going on here in the United States? That is a good question. Uh, honestly, Pete, it, it seems like it is 
a little bit more uniform than you would expect. You really? Would expect that, you know, from a, you know, obviously internationally, there are cultural uh, implications uh, that play a part in real estate and how companies acquire, keep staff, how they use real estate and what role that office plays for, uh, plays within the organization. But, you know, from what we have seen, and, you know, I think we're still in, you know, probably, you know, maybe in the third inning of this thing. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the reaction that we're seeing kind of across the globe uh, in this stage in the game is you know, rooted heavily in uh, kind of safety and health and sure. companies making sure that they're taking care of their employees first and allowing them the flexibility to remain at home uh, in, the, in the near term. Uh, but as we, you know, as we start to work with organizations that have developed and are rolling out policies, kind of a getting back to work policy, uh, we are seeing a little uni uniformity in how they approach whether or not they're going to keep an office open, sure. how they're going to restaff that office, what, um, what, you know, what, what, if anything, are they going to do to the physical property um, in, in getting back into the office? And so a lot of that, you know, and, and again, our, our, our exposure to that, you know, is working with, you know, primarily some United States based companies. And so they are deploying kind of a, I don't almost call it kind of a top down approach and a rollout, if you will, on how they get back into the office worldwide. So I, I don't want to say they're imposing a, you know, a US centric uh, rollout around the world, but you know, they, there is some uniformity to it. Surprise. That's interesting. I didn't realize that the, uh, that depending on where the headquarters were, could have a bigger influence on, on what's happening in the rest of their local operations. It is, and it's interesting to, to me, you know, if, if you have a company that, uh, let's say they have decided to uh, create a call center over in um, uh, whatever, you know, Mumbai or Bangalore or Hyderabad or, or one of these areas, it's very uh, surprising to me, or encouraging, I guess you could say, that those individuals are able to actually go back to their homes and conduct business, you know, just like they would as if they were in the office. Right? Sure. You know, I would think access, you know, in, in certain places, you know, we have clients that have offices in, you know, say Kathmandu, Nepal, right? In Kathmandu, Nepal, you, you know, the, the, the electrical grid is unreliable, right? There are power outages all the time. Uh, and so, you know, th those folks may not have access to internet at home, but they're figuring out ways to stay productive. But, you know, we are seeing, you know, uh, companies that have, you know, uh, offices in, in you know, second world, third world countries like that, you know, really try to bring their people back, you know, maybe a little bit sooner just because they, they can't perform their function at home. What's the, uh, what's the latest view from an organization like Savills on the U.S. shifting people back into offices? Do you see it? getting back to 50%, 70% occupancy, or staying where we are for a few more months? Well, so the short-term and long-term view, right. right? I think that the short-term view on bringing people back into the office, you know, and I don't know if I could speak for Savills as a whole here, but, you know, my, sure. my, and my experiences uh, are, are, you know, the majority of folks are starting to push people back into the office later this year. Uh, with kind of a, uh, a line in the sand date out there of uh, June of 2021. You've seen some of these large organizations like, like Facebook or uh, Google or um, uh, some, some of the other large uh, organizations put that date you know, further out in time. 
But those large organizations, you know, they have the benefit and the resources to manage their, their people remotely mm-hmm. much differently and much more effectively than your small, medium, you know, uh, organizations. And, you know, quite frankly, their, their culture is already defined in large part, right? The, the innovation that they, you know, that they have to roll out, you know, their processes in place with that. It's a very different situation for those companies that are just getting going. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they don't have a defined culture, where they're where they need to, you know, we're working with a group right now that has 20 people in town now, and by June of next year they plan on having 50. Right? Sure. How do you get from 20 to 50 people while everybody is working remotely? How do you hire uh, over Zoom and right. try to bring people up? So I think there is going to be uh, a couple different uh, paths. For based on the life cycle of the company and when they come back into the office because the office plays a very different role in, you know, new companies versus established companies. We're going through that right now. We've onboarded a couple of people the past few weeks and it's, you know, we had a team meet them in the office and do some yeah. physical onboarding and then the rest of it, you know, they're meeting the team through these kind of calls. Yeah. yeah. So the training's different. The culture's different. Um, are you... What kind of conversations do you have with customers about what the office will look like once they come back? How different will it be? Uh, so physically different, you know, I, I think it depends on where those com- companies are in their lease, in the stage of their lease. Right? Uh-huh. You know, and what appetite does a company have to spend money to retrofit their office, not knowing how long whatever that capital investment is going to be is going to be worthwhile or utilized, right? Sure. There, you know, there are a lot of companies, and this is a conversation that we get involved in right now. There, there is a pre-vaccine and a post-vaccine view of the office space. Uh, and so, in a post-vaccine, you know, assuming that the vaccine is effective, uh, there are a lot of companies that are hesitant to spend any money on retrofitting their space because it may be uh, money wasted down, you know, six, twelve months from now. So what are they doing to uh, account for that in the near term for those folks that are coming back? They are staggering occupancy. So mm-hmm. you hear this 25, 50, 75% you know, occupancy staggering. That is uh, due in large part to trying to spatially or socially distance their people that do come into the office. Understood. So like when you go to a restaurant these days, you'll see chairs at some tables and no chairs at others. Yep. They pull the chair away from the desk right? Every other desk or something like that. So, you know, I think the pre and post vaccine uh, storyline has, you know, that's what people are, are, are focused on. You know, It'll be interesting. And, and obviously it's different, as you mentioned, when you think about organizations like Facebook or Google or Amazon, they're moving information. They can do that from a computer in a Zoom call all day long, you know, physical assets that they need to manage or be a part of. Yeah. So they'll have different things to consider versus an organization that has half manufacturing, half office space. They've got all those challenges. But I'm even wondering, uh, when you think about coming back, regardless of a vaccine or not, this has to have people thinking differently about how to drive productivity through an organization in, a, in a, what I would call a blended working environment, where people can work from home infrequently and then potentially work from the office. I know at our organization we need to rethink the way the whole process works because we find value when we come together as a team in a group, in a meeting to collaborate, right? That's really important is that collaboration piece, looking someone in the eye and reading the room and finding out who I'm losing and who I'm not losing. And then saying, can you draw it on the whiteboard for me? We miss that interaction. I don't know that we need to be at our desks 
to do that, right? I think getting those spurts of creativity as a team and then potentially saying, you guys go off and work remote for a while and get some stuff done, and then we'll come back and collaborate. So I'm wondering how many people are looking at you guys and saying, hey, Savils, you, you're doing this all over the world. What can we do to take this opportunity to pivot or rethink the office? And how much work do you guys do uh, or are you influenced by architectural firms that are out there rethinking this whole process as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of the conversation right now. And, and the, way the, the way that that is trending at this point in time, and this is actually, this is actually happening a little bit when um, prior to COVID is you have two types of space, you have two kind of categories of space within an office. You've got me space and we space. You have space which, you know, I sit down at the desk, it's a designated space just for me. And that's where I do my work. And then I've got we space, which is collaborative space, just like what you're talking about, getting together around a whiteboard, et cetera. So what we see happening right now is there is going to be a, a further reduction in new space and a growth in we space. So it's going to, you're going to be kind of pulling at it from two different sides. So there will be, you know, less dedicated office space per employee, but equal to or greater amount of collaborative space to allow people to get together and work on, you know, work on group think or innovation sure. or project management and that type of thing. Uh, morale boosting activities, things like that. So it's, it's, you know, we're going through a pretty big shift right now, but I think, you know, in addition to the me, me space, we space paradigm, there is the real discussion going on right now is what is the impact of work from home going to be on the future sides of the office? Absolutely. Um, and like, can I hit pause real quick? Yeah. With this dog, this second. So you're mentioning this, this me space, we space thing. And by the way, I like that term. I'm not sure if that's your term or how, how people view that, but that's an interesting way to think about it. I was over at uh, PMC Carolina, Harry Chalker's company, who I think actually kind of sure. connected you and my son at one point. Uh, Harry, right. have you seen Harry's new space yet? Uh, just online. We've been invited to go over there. We just haven't done it yet. So get over there. I, I took a tour of it. I think it was on Friday morning. Uh, it's astounding. Uh, I heard that. Yeah. I, I want to go work there. I, I don't care what I do. I said, I'll sit in the lobby and, you know, welcome people as a Walmart greeter. But you had a couple of things that struck me when I saw that space. And, and by the way, a little background here is somebody will have a podcast here soon, but Harry's one of Hayworth, who's a global commercial uh, furniture manufacturer. He's one of their largest dealers in the Southeast. And a really progressive thinker, Harry assembles, I think, components from various different vendors and manufacturers into these amazing workspaces. So they were in the process of building out their own space in the middle of when COVID hit. So they've got architectural plans, they've got layouts, they've got furniture, they've got walls, floors, and they literally had to hit the pause button and say, how do we rethink this? To their credit, they did a great job rethinking it. So they have these, yeah. you call these, uh, and, and Hayworth had a campaign called Social Spaces, which at one time probably had the most awkward you know, connotation during COVID, but they've created, <laughs> they've created these environments where you, I, I said to Harry, when I walked in, I felt like I was walking into a five-star hotel. The way they've got music in the background is very different than I've ever seen. It's piped throughout the office. In a way you can still function and communicate, and they have these pods where you can sit down and do a, a workstation and, and do what you need to accomplish, but a lot more of these collaborative centers that are adequately spaced, both indoors and outdoors, where I could think of tremendous creativity. You get people in an environment where now they're thinking about, because 
you know this, if you want to be there, your productivity goes up. Right. If you don't want to be there, it just doesn't because you're thinking the whole time about leaving. Right. right. So I, I, I also, you made an interesting comment. I see this interesting combination of carrying that feeling into someone's home. So I said, Harry, if I come to work here and then I go home and my home office is worse, Right, I, I, and you want me to stay there? We got to figure out how to tie those two together and make it feel like they're connected. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're you're exactly right. I mean, that you know the the division between the home office and the office is getting blurred very very quickly. Right, it is. We have you know we've been forced kind of through the uh, through the black hole here into everybody can now work from home, which doesn't mean that that their home is set up for for, for their workspace. Right, no. so a lot of people adapt but you know we're five months into this and i would imagine there's still a lot of people sitting at their kitchen table you know on their laptop correct right? now they've got two monitors sitting on their kitchen table that they take on and off there you know two times a day right so it's yep. not there, there is going to be you know, i was talking to uh you know the, the leading residential real estate agent in the in the triangle area uh last week and he said it is amazing how quickly people are looking to sell their house and purchase a house that is larger than what they have because now their house has to be, it's more, what do you say? It's more than just a shelter, right? It's, it's their gym. It's yep. their home office. They, they, you know, some folks are, are building out rooms for their kids to do homeschooling, right? Or virtual learning and that type of thing. So yeah, yeah I mean, we're, we're definitely in a very, a very big shift, but you know, as far as the work from home, element and its impact on commercial real estate. I had a call this morning with a telecom company, a large telecom company, and, you know, they're sitting there trying to figure out how to resize, you know, how to, how to resize their headquarters office. Right. And, you know, the, the conversation that I was kind of taking them through is you got to understand that work from home, work from home is what it has always been. It's an employee benefit. Yep. Some companies offer it. Some companies have offered it, you know, what's going to happen is that employee benefit is going to expand, right? It is going to be more, uh, you know, it's going to be offered more. People are going to have more flexibility, but working from home in and of itself has zero impact on an office's square footage. Zero. Interesting. Right. The only way that you impact an office's square footage is if you move away from what has historically been a one desk to one employee ratio, one desk versus one employee ratio. So this whole hoteling, flexible office, these, these, you know, kind of terms that are being thrown around, you know, people have, and companies have to understand if they want to reduce their office space, which is the, uh, you know, the economic advantage of working from home, mm -hmm. they have to move away from dedicated desks, right? So that's how you do it. Because historically, you know, uh, what we've done in the brokerage business is a company comes along and they say, I have a hundred employees. And we say, what sector are you in? And they say technology. And we say, well, in technology in Austin, Texas, you need to be leasing about 175 square feet per person. So we are going to go lease 17,500 square feet, 100 times 175, right? Well, that's because there was a direct correlation between the number of employees and, and square footage per employee. Now the conversation that we're taking people through is you need to figure out what roles and what individuals require a dedicated desk. And that could be driven by a number of things. The CEO, sure. EP of HR, uh, you know, the guy that, uh, that it, the IT support guy, that need, guy or girl that needs to be there all the time, mm -hmm. right? There are, there are roles and responsibilities that require a dedicated desk. There are people 
that for their own personal circumstances will be more productive with a dedicated desk. Certainly. There's folks that live outside of town that don't have great, great access to internet. Mm-hmm. There are some folks that have, you know, four kids and four dogs at home, right? That's not a great place to work, right? So what you need to do or what we're taking people through is to break apart your population, your office population into those that need dedicated spaces and then those that do not, right? And then for those that do not, you need to have a candid conversation with those department managers with, or maybe it's a, a top, top down uh, exercise where you say, how many days per week does this, do the, do the remainder of the sales department need to be in the office? Is it three out of five? Is it two out of five? And you, and then that if it's three out of five, that means you need 60% of the, you know, 60% of the people need to come in, right? So then you take the dedicated office as you add this ratio together and that helps you form how many seats you need for your future office size. Right. right? You take, take on to that Pete, and then you add this we space. Yep. And then that helps, that is helping people create a framework for right sizing or resizing the office in the future. But in this exercise, you know, what it, what we're running into is if their companies are hesitant or, or, not putting a lot of weight into having a space large enough to accommodate the entire company. So the question is, you know, the, the day of the town hall meeting, right, which companies are, you know, companies have, have, have had for forever, you know, where the CEO or whomever gets up and kind of does the rah-rah, you know, is that, are those days over, right? Or is the town hall meeting going to occur offsite from here going forward? It's interesting. We have a, a town hall format in our office. We call it the stadium. Yeah. Where uh, every Monday we got the whole company together at 915 and the remote office is zoomed in. Yeah. But you, know, you still got a hundred people in a room. Yeah. And people are thinking differently about that right now. Uh, and maybe when we get into a vaccine or, or, or no vaccine environment where you're from now, Ameri- Americans have a pretty, pretty short memory, right? So we're going to, we'll break through this and somehow we'll all be hugging them out and high five each other and, you know, sharing beers in a year. I don't know. Right. But yeah, I, I think the same thing. I, I even believe my team could benefit from a wee space somewhere in Durham or in Raleigh where we'd say, we're going to go down and have a four hour team meeting, collaborate the heck out of it. And then we're going to go have a drink at the pub down the street together as a team and make it a bonding environment. To me, there's, there's some benefit to doing that and getting away and then being able to focus on my work. To your point, Companies have to have a discussion about where do people accomplish their work in the best environment. For some, it is at home. For some, it's at the office. And some, it's in a we space. And they're going to have to be very, very flexible as they look at this, which makes your job, thinking about all of the commercial real estate in a particular market, how do you reallocate and repurpose it so that it's effective? Yep. Yep. And that's a, I mean, I'll give you a case in point. Some of this has more to do with... uh, uh, call it the social distancing impact of, of COVID, but yep. we had a client that was looking to lease 200,000 square feet in Berlin, Germany. Okay. They were uh, identified a building. They were moving forward. Uh, I was in the CBD of, Germ- uh, of Berlin and COVID happens and Berlin has a high degree of public transportation, right? Very much so. Mm-hmm. Probably get on the, on the subway in order to get, to get to the office. Well, that caused a lot of concerns. So they broke that same requirement up into four 50,000 square foot offices and put them closest to the population centers outside of Berlin. Interesting. And to, avoid the, to, to avoid that amount of public transportation. 
and also to make sure that you know if there is some sort of hot spot effect that hits in one location it doesn't affect all all of their population so you know now if you really think about that pete okay so you're gonna that is that has a 10-year tail on it yeah it does. in your lease so are you know i think that the smart decision right now is no decision in the world of real estate mm -hmm. i don't think anybody would 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 argue with that because there's just we just don't know what what tomorrow is going to bring but right. that that organization made a 10-year decision to bifurcate their operations so if 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 innovation is driven by bumping into people that you wouldn't otherwise right and yeah. you know cross-pollinization of ideas throughout different departments what is the long-term impact of bifurcating an operation like that we just we just don't know Right. And how much of that is, is replicable through Zoom? I, you know, I, I would tend to think there is there has got to be some dilution to that. You know? it, it is. Uh, and by the way, leave it to the Germans to factor in transportation protocols and commuting times and, and the uh, different you know, methods of public transportation in, in Berlin into their decision making process. Right. Right. Very quickly, too. Uh, by the way, Berlin's one of my favorite cities. I, I, I love it there in, in public transportation. Uh, for those that haven't spent a lot of time, you know, all their taxi cabs are Mercedes-Benz with TVs in them. Yeah. And they were watching TV, live TV in, in Mercedes-Benz way before we were. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great city. But, you know, let's, let's shift gears for a minute, uh, Tucker. And, and I think I've enjoyed hearing Vinny talk about uh, what he's learning from you about the space and the adaption you guys have had it made. You know, he talked a lot about when he joined commercial real estate, do I go on the development side? Do I go on, you know, the tenant rep side, the transactional side? There's all different places. He did his homework. He talked to a lot of people. Yep. I think he, I think he chose wisely because, you know, on the tenant rep side, you're always part of whatever movement's happening. Expansion, contraction, changes, subleases, whatever it is. There's always going to be a transaction, right? And your job is to help your customers find, you know, find the right space at the right time. Uh, let's shift gears and talk about, you know, your background you spent your, your career in commercial real estate. You had another sales job prior to this, but before that you were a very successful division one athlete at um, the, the light blue school down the street. My son went to NC state. So <laughs> that's right. wherever that's I write a check to Tucker, that's where my loyalties lie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you swam at UNC. You were an all American, four time all American, I believe. That's right. Yeah. And team captain, correct. Right. Uh, at a pretty impressive swimming school. So when you were, Going through the process as an athlete, did you know what you wanted to get into while you were there? What drove you to, to get into a sales or eventually into commercial real estate? What, what was it that triggered that for you? Yeah, interesting. So when I was at school, I, through my, the beginning of my junior year, I was a chemistry major of all things. No kidding. You know, I was interested in the sciences. Uh, some of that had to do with a, you know, a very influential science teacher that I had back in, you know, small town Illinois um, before I uh, before I was lucky enough to go out and come to UNC. But, um, you know, through throughout school, I quickly figured out that I think my my talents lied uh, more with interacting with people mm -hmm. and communication with people. And coming out of school, I actually uh, packed up from UNC and went over to move to uh, San Francisco. This was 1999 through, through the dot-com era. Sure. You know, the, the, end of, the very end of the dot-com era. I, I, signed up, I signed up with a company um, 
whatever it was, 21, that was publicly traded and IPO'd. And I got some stock options as part of, as part of my signing bonus or whatever it was, uh, which I certainly didn't deserve as a first time job. And as I was driving from North Carolina out to San Francisco, the stock price went from like 57 to seven. Right? Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I showed up. You know, I had a very quick education in what the value or the devalue of stock options can be. So we've all had that, yeah. I actually cut my teeth um, in a sales role uh, out in San Francisco during the the reemergence or coming out of the dot the dot bomb at that point in time, mm-hmm. which you know was was fascinating because that is about the highest in, in my experience, about as high paced as you can get. Yeah, uh, I joined an organization that uh, that had an inside sales department, which I know you're very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Inside sales department. I came on in a class of uh, of ten, right? Um, and you know, in in four or five weeks, that was from ten down to three, right? And you know, I went you know worked with uh, two companies while out there, and you know, watched kind of the bust and boom cycle, and you know, identified. You know, getting back to your question, kind of identified. Uh, in myself that the discipline that swimming gave me and that athletics gave me was an attribute in the business world. Right. Because really, you know, swimming is about as boring a sport as you can get out there. But if you do put the reps in and you, and you stick to it, the results will come your way. So just, you know, just like kind of getting in the pool for, for doubles, uh, in, in, uh, you know, at five fifteen, five thirty in the morning growing up, you know, I would often be the first one in the office out in San Francisco to start making calls and, and, and start, you know, kind of putting checks on the board, you know, sure. uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, swimming is one of those sports that, uh, that either, either you're going to learn discipline through swimming. Um, and if you, if you, if you stick with it in the business world, it certainly, certainly uh, pays dividends. It does. And as a, uh, a triathlete, Swimming is probably the weakest part of my disciplines. Um, I've swam next to you a couple times at, at TAC, and I'm amazed when the high school kids are in swim season, they're in the water, you know, 12 in the lane, grinding it out at 5 in the morning. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart. And I think <laughs> what you're describing is the grind, right? When you interview someone who has spent time uh, as a Division One athlete or any kind of an athlete in college, uh, when, when Vinny was uh, first transferring to state, uh, he met up with some of the soccer players and saw him at a bar and ended up having a conversation, didn't know them. And he asked, you know, what, what's it been like for you? And one of them was actually a chemistry major. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, he said, look, I can tell you just a very short story. Then I've interviewed for several jobs. Uh, I interviewed against one of my classmates in chemical engineering for a job. That person was smarter than me. But I got the job because the hiring manager looked at me and said, I'm going to hire you because I know at five o'clock in the morning, you're going to get up with your game face on and be ready to roll. I don't need to teach you discipline. I don't need to teach you the importance of hard work, teamwork. All those things come with someone who's participated at that level. And you instantly have a qualification piece that doesn't need to be explored. Right. 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 Now describe to me, I think in your hiring practice, you tend to focus on hiring people that are like-minded former college athletes. How's that worked out for you? Has, as your thesis held up during that, during the time you built your own company? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, we, we have some folks in our organization here that do come from a sports background and, and some that don't. And both, mm-hmm. both uh, kind of profiles bring a different attributes to, to the business. And our, sure. our business is pretty, pretty uh, multifaceted, 
endeavor in which you need to be able to interact with people. You need to be able to do, you know, some, some light math, but you need to be, you know, you need to be able to understand finance and, and, mm -hmm. and work through some problem solving financially. Right. But you know, there is, there is one attribute of the business that definitely caters better to those folks that have an athletic background and it is the business development element. Sure. Right? The business development element. And I, I, you know, others have heard me say this before. I mean, commercial real estate's a three-legged stool, right? One of the, and if you, if you don't work on one of those legs, you're going to fall over. Correct. Right? So business development is one. And then second is, you know, transaction management, helping those clients that, uh, that you've been fortunate enough to get hired by. And then the third one is professional development, making sure that tomorrow you learn something tomorrow that you didn't know yesterday. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, the BD side, the business development side does cater better to those, to those folks that have athletic backgrounds for just the reasons that you stated, which is, you know, they, they, they realize that, uh, you know, it's, it's not just going to come to them. They're going to have to go out there and they're going to put the reps in and those reps turn into, uh, you know, we've got a guy that works for us that, um, you know, has a background in, in college football, played football all growing up. And uh, he will sit down at the desk and make, you know, basically get out the yellow pages for those who remember what that is. Yes. Get out the yellow pages and he, he will make the calls uh, doggedly day after day. And, you know, he, you know, he's, he's brought business into the firm that, that we wouldn't have otherwise. And you know, sure. he's, he's engaging with, with businesses that, you know, are, have requirements that typically would be picked up by people that have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years experience in commercial real estate. And he has, you know, three or four. Right? So yeah, it's uh, you know, the, there is, I, I don't see that trend going away. The, you know, that is, that is an attribute for uh, hiring managers and people coming out of school that um, you know, that, that in my mind is you know, kind of replaceable. And, and at the end of the day, people buy based on relationships. Right. And if you've uh, made an investment in a relationship potentially early in your career, and I believe you have a story like this where you did a deal, a very small deal that most people would pass up, that person that you did the deal for and you were successful and came through in the clutch evolved their career to the point where they're not making a decision on a very, very much bigger deal right. and you're the person they're going to call. Right. So that investment in building those relationships, we can do all this virtual thing, but at the end of the day, people want to do business with people they like. Uh, this makes it more challenging. Uh, I've, I, I think also Vinny has described me, and I think it's probably true in any, any company. I think the Zoom thing has made it more difficult to mentor young employees than if they're in, like you said, in an office next to you. Hey, hey, Mark. Hey, Matt. Come on in here. I want to walk you through this deal. You're not going to do that when you're at your desk in, in, in a virtual environment. So, um, you know, how, how do you address that? How do you bridge that gap in, in mentoring your young team? Well, it's, let me, let me kind of tack onto that on the front end. You know, this is happening at about the worst possible time that it could. We have the largest segment of the working population of baby boomers exiting the workforce at the same time that this Zoom impact is happening and forcing people, you know, that, that knowledge transfer oh, yeah. is probably more important now than it ever has been is being hampered by you know, this, this, you know, work from home effect, right? So it's, 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 uh, you know, I, it's, uh, it's a little scary, right? But, you know, to your point, you know, you know businesses don't have textbooks, right? Sure. You, you may get a three ring binder and a manual when you start and that'll teach you something, but you learn most of the things 
through interacting with your peers, right. you know, that have, that have been likely for much longer than, than, than you have, right? Or in right. the business for much longer. Well, you know, I, you, you said something that I haven't, by the way, I haven't heard people make that statement before, right? Which is the, the winding down of the baby booter generation and the knowledge transfer that needs to take place that's being hampered by the fact that we're doing this. I, I have a, a very talented employee and status to of the, the business, but got a really great opportunity, very happy for them. And we're now trying to figure out, all right, we got to get all what's in your head over to this person's head. It's yeah. a much more deliberate act than it used to be. Yeah. We have to document things in a way we didn't do that we could do in a whiteboard in front of somebody and make sure yeah. that that knowledge transfers a bit more formal. Well, and, and, you know, play this out a little bit longer. You know, why, why do people end up staying with the companies that they're at, right? Which is where you really get an ROI on an employee the longer that they're there, hopefully. Yep. Uh, you know, it's because they, they like and they respect and they trust the people that they work with, right? Sure. And they interact with them and they become friendly with them, right? Right. So what happens if uh, people are spending a lot less time together, they're spending a lot less time around, you know, interacting with the core of the organization, they're going to feel a lot, naturally, I think they're going to feel a lot less loyal. To right. The organization. So, you know, we've, we've got this, you know, there could be this, 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 this kind of growing, uh, you know, layer on top of that, that this is going to be play into, you know, into the millennial generation, which is sure. the second largest pop, you know, working population that we've ever seen come through. Yeah. Right? Which is already, you know, arguably uh, a little bit more jumpy than the, than the, than the generations that have come before in terms of, um, you know, sticking with a certain company. So you know, I, I think we've got, you know, a couple real headwinds in front of us here in terms of, uh, you know, legacy knowledge transfer within organizations, which the timing of the COVID thing is, is really going to uh, exacerbate that. It'll be interesting just to see how you guys can weave that into your value proposition when you're helping people find uh, and think about new real estate and new office space. I had, that's a level of depth that uh, once you get in front of a potential client, you can deliver that kind of, it's the same thing we feel like at our company. If I have a conversation with you, I'll be able to help you understand what we're going to bring to the table. You've given me a couple of points that I hadn't even considered. The fact that you can sit down with an employer and say, here's why you need to rethink your office space. Because all of your, your, your tribal knowledge is about to leave your business. And the people you need to replenish that with, to your point, are going to be jumpy. Right there, It's easy for a recruiter to pop in and go, hey, I got more money and a better virtual uh, office monitor. Because I have no relationship with my peers. I haven't interacted with them. I, don't, I haven't formed these bonds that are so important. That and I, by the way, I think this generation craves it. I think they crave those personal relationships, even after work, right? I want to go have some, you know, a drink with my coworkers, build those relationships. We, we don't have kids yet. That's my social circle. Very often for people is their first employees, right? So, um, you know, I think that's it's going to be interesting. As as you said, I think a lot of companies are still in need. The best thing to do right now is nothing. Let's evaluate. But they got to start thinking about those issues uh, as they move forward. And they got to get people who come back to the office to feel like, number one, they're safe. Number two, they created a place where they want to be, right? right. Uh, I, one of the things that amazed me about Harry's space is he, they wove glass partitions in to the, to the structure in a way that didn't feel confining at all. Right. Versus, you know, somebody in the back room with a table saw chopping up pieces and bolting them to the desks, right? That doesn't feel, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like a place I want to be. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're right on it. And 
you know, it's, it's interesting when this whole thing happened, I was talking to a client of ours, an engineering firm, you know, $3 billion a year, they got offices all over the world. And this guy, this guy runs the Raleigh office. And he was saying, you know, I had a junior guy call me and say that or another engineering firm called him that, Hey, if you come and work in our office, you won't even need to go into the office. And so he pitched the work from home, this competitor wow. pitched the work from home as a as a benefit a fringe benefit and the engineer and this junior person told told you know the local raleigh manager i i don't i want to come into the office yeah it's it's in a there may be a, a complete flip here in which those offices that those those businesses that maintain office space and allow their people to come together that may be an attribute that may be a benefit right yeah. because, and think about it i mean yeah. we're getting married later in life yeah right? oh yeah they're forming their, you know, their social circles are, are, you know, rooted at work in a lot of cases, right? And so taking away the office, I think, is going to have, I don't think it's going to be as simple as, you know, less office space, the better for everybody. Uh, Vinny's craving getting back in the office and my wife can't wait till I'm out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. And even, she goes, I need my house back. You need to leave. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hearing that a lot. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. So, um, you know, Tucker, I, I want to let you get back to the rest of your day. I'm, I'm amazed every time I do one of these podcasts, uh, how much I learn. Uh, and it's, it's great to hear some of the challenges you guys are facing and how you're thinking about them. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will benefit and, and probably take something back to their employers that they hadn't thought of, um, well, to help them understand, hey, we've got to face this and think this differently than we have been. And I'm looking forward to seeing how both your business and uh, the Raleigh market and the, the global markets kind of rebound from this. As are we, as are we. It's uh, interesting times, and uh, you, you know these are the times where you really got to put the effort in. Yes, not just stick your head in the sand because the the relationships that you make as you come through these types of situations will be long lasting. So, Understood. So, what's your dog's name, by the way? Uh, she's she's trying to be part of the podcast, and she? she's she's great. What's her name? <laughs> uh, her name is Nala. She's a a Rhodesian Ridgeback. Nala is that named after the Lion King? That's exactly right. So Rhodesian Ridgebacks are known as Af African lion hunting dogs from really? South Africa. Yeah, they get together a pack of them and they go and trap a lion somewhere. They get to be, you know, hundred pound dogs. And oh wow, she's, uh, she's uh, participating. Well, tell Nala we, we appreciate her input. It was valuable. <laughs> yes, I will. I will. Thanks for the opportunity, Pete. Yeah, Tucker, I certainly appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to connecting in another podcast down the road. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to another episode of Eating Crow, available on all podcast platforms. You can follow Pete on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram to join the Eating Crow community. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you soon.